0: Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode then please do follow and share it with a friend and a five star review will always help in a big way wherever you listen to your podcasts and if you really enjoy the episodes then please do consider becoming a patron of the show. Finally, sign up to our free monthly newsletter, giving you some much needed updates in the world of adventure. Just use the link in the description. Today's guest is Will Copestake. He's back again for a second episode and if you missed the main interview, I'll put that in the show notes too so you can go check it out. We talk about his background, his experience, New Zealand, Norway, Iceland, Scotland, Patagonia, but today we go more in depth on that last one, Patagonia. He's done a couple of expeditions and has guided kayaking in Patagonia for a while now. And we talk about his experience and his extensive knowledge of the area, just exploring fjords, racing glaciers at one point, um, racing icebergs I should say, really glaciers move quite slowly. But um, I hope you enjoy it. Before we get into it as well, you can always read about it on the main blog too, on the website. But otherwise, let's get straight into the interview. So, Will, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show, and you're going to talk about something fantastic today. How are you doing?
1: Very good. Thanks for having me back, Chris.
0: Oh, honestly, it's such a pleasure. Uh, it's this is we touched upon this trip uh, in the interview that we did, and um, and yeah, I was just blown away from not only from. From what I read about it beforehand and from what from what you said but also looking at your website the imagery too is just insane and we just spoke about the the image of um you uh, kayaking up to the, uh, the the glacier and your camera nearly get taken out from one behind but
1: yeah um, <laughs> yeah
0: it was very
1: nearly the loss of a camera from a carving wave that one which is uh, a <laughs> the <laughs>
0: What a wonderful way for it to go but like it would it would don't. be a
1: cool way for camera to die. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um so uh, yeah we're talking about Patagonia and your expedition there. I mean overall sort of impressions how was it?
1: Uh I think it, for me Any trip that I have done anywhere in the world, Patagonia trumps all of them um, in every aspect, be it the people, the culture, the landscape, the sheer wilderness. Um, Personally, it's the most wild place I think I've ever travelled to. Patagonia is one of those places that most of the time, the weather and the conditions make an expedition honestly fairly torturous. It is unbelievably wet it is cold it is windier than anywhere I've seen on earth Um, the kind of average wind is 25 to 40 knots through the summer Um, so 50 mile an hour ish Um, it is a hard place to travel Uh, but the reward to that is that you get this incredible untouched wilderness Uh, you won't see any other people once you leave um, the main sort of hubs and roads once you get out into the, the fjordland you are utterly alone. Uh, And then when you do get those rare good days, it's just out of this world. And, and, you know, you you could
0: for most people, you could basically just do your normal holidays and one time go to Patagonia and that would be the highlight of your life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And strangely, Patagonia kind of lives on this legend a little bit in the Torres del Paine, the national park, which I, I live and work on the Chilean side when I'm down there is now the eighth natural wonder of the world. It is an incredibly popular tourist destination. Um, I can't remember the exact figures, but it's several hundred thousand visitors a year that it gets. Um, And it sustains a large tourism industry down there. But they completely survive on this illusion of it's the ultimate end of the earth. And and most visitors who come there have that mindset of I'm going to be here once, and this is going to be my big adventure of a lifetime. Um, And it is interesting that that is still the case there and and you do most of our guests that we we take paddling it is the one time they're ever going to go to patagonia in their life and it, it's it's nice that it actually makes guiding very easy because it's people are there and they're, they're kind of ramped up already it's an amazing place
0: yeah and i guess you you've got to be one for type two fun uh before before you book i guess yeah
1: you totally do you totally do um the the company i mean with the the trekking the trekking sells itself on these amazing, grandiose views. And the the mountains there, I mean, they look like something out of a painting. There's sort of these massive spires, very steep granite valleys, ice caps in the background. Um, but the the hiking can be windy and it can be pretty wild. Uh, as a kayaker, it, I often find it, it's the biggest baptism of fire you will ever have as a beginning paddler anywhere on earth. They, they put you in a... a Tandem kayak normally, and the the very first fifteen minutes of the day trips that they run, you are having to teach someone not only how to forward paddle and stay upright in a boat, but how to deal with fifty mile an hour plus winds, how to deal with going sideways in a river, and then against a river. Um, <laughs> And, it, and it, you start in the most exposed place and you've got stones flying in your face and there's spindrifts and tornadoes going past and you're kind of going, yeah, you need to go around the liver here and you have to go up that stream, screaming it all at the top of your lungs. And you then, you then put them in the boat and go, good luck, chuck them out. <laughs> but it, it, it's an amazingly safe venue. It's just intimidating, which is brilliant.
0: Yeah. I mean, How did this trip come about? So first of all, had you been to Patagonia before?
1: No, so the, the, the big trip that I did down there was actually my second year in Chile. Um, my, my first year was just after what we kind of talked about in the last uh, podcast, my big Scotland trip. Um, and having just done this sort of year adventure, I, I applied all around the world to pretty much anywhere in the South Hemisphere to try and get wind to work uh, and got hired by a company that did expedition kayak tours there uh, and basically learned expedition Kayak guiding in Chile um, through this company. Now, through that season, a lot of things happened in that season. It was a really sort of epic season for me. It was um, a big learning curve, but also arguably one of the last years of what is now commonly referred to by the paddling companies as the old school way, um, which was kind of before formal health and safety, uh, before before you had like client limits. Um, before you had sort of wind limits. Um, A lot of regulation has come in in the last half decade. Um, Not to say that that wasn't safe before. The the companies were very good. But it's a very different style now. And sort of going into that, it was a a pretty big baptism of fire. Um, And I I basically worked that whole first season. And when you're working there, you're you're going very remote anyway, uh, sort of 100 kilometres away from the nearest road. But you're staring up at this ice cap and the mountains, and you can't help but wonder what's on the other side of them. Um, and that's kind of what seeded the expedition idea, which the second year, um, which I came back work, working for the same company under a new owner. The, the clause of me coming back was at the end of the season. Uh, I, I wanted two boats for a month and a half uh, and wanted to go and do this big paddle expedition, <laughs> um, which they, they gladly let me do. Yeah, it's not bad, is it? No, it's not bad negotiation. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: one of the few places you could you could do that. You wouldn't get a job as a paralegal secretary and then go right. I'll do it, but at the end of end of October, I want two kayaks.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it. Um, and I, I've kind of had that ever since. I now and I work for a different company, um, Kayak in Patagonia, which I've worked for for a couple of years. Um, the, the original com- company, which is Tuta is still going as well. Um, and I've kind of followed that on Chris, Chris, my new boss and, and friend, um, has this deal at the end of the season that I, I basically will take a couple of boats and, and go on a big adventure. Um, and it's nice, the employers really kind of get it like that and they, they know that you're coming down there to, to see and do stuff and not just kind of work, work yourself to the bone. Um, and it, I, I, I find personally, it means I, I, I work harder, um, and I, I'm motivated and and for then the you you then arguably become a more interesting guide because you've you've got more raw experience of the local area to talk about you you learn the birds and the environment and what's over the other side of the hills if the guest asks about it so it's a, it's a proper win-win situation basically yeah i mean all, all companies should should do that i think kind of Not necessarily saying all companies should chuck their employees into the wilderness for a while, but it's although they should. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, kind of following
0: on from that, what kind of skill level do you need to do this? Like, so you, so when you mentioned your Scotland trip just then, for anyone who hasn't uh, listened to the interview before or uh, hasn't heard of uh, Will before, you did this insane 364 day expedition kayaking around Scotland and then. By bicycle traveling between all the Munros and hiking all and climbing all the Munros, Mon- right yes yeah so quite crazy <laughs>
1: yeah well uh, uh, exciting in terms of paddling experience in in patagonia the, the big expeditions you absolutely do need to be able to prove experience um for two for two reasons one it is unbelievably remote um and you will at some point be doing fast thinking and improvising um the amazing thing particularly in the inner fjords the waves don't get what i would call massive unless you exit the fjords in which case you get full-on ocean conditions but you get very short steep waves um i say they're small they can still be two and a half three meters but very short interval so they're steep and breaking And, and what makes it challenging in chile is is it can go from absolutely zero wind to a force 8 force 10 gale where you've literally got spin drifts and tornadoes and it it, and it can do that within a minute i mean i've I've actually seen less than a minute just kind of it's on and that is the, the conditions that you have and it it makes your whole thinking and planning revolve around the wind and and I find in the fjords, particularly, you're constantly thinking, where can I bail? Um, and I often think of it kind of like a computer game. You pass a landing point or a beach and you go, okay, there's a checkpoint. And the, the other thing that you need with in terms of experience there is you cannot do anything on the water whatsoever without prior permission from the Navy, which is, is a challenge. The, the, the normal, the guided trips, you, you don't have to worry about that. You just kind of get on with the company and the company have it all sorted. My my first trip expedition that I did there it took three months of planning um, to get permission. Um, the 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 next trip that I did it was probably about the same uh, and actually involved doing a PowerPoint presentation on on our trip detailing every possible campsite that you could think of using Google Earth and they needed at least four or five a day to to say yeah okay you've planned it. Um, which if if you think for a trip that you'll hoping is going to be 30 days uh, planning it to be 45 that's a lot of grid points that you've got to be able to speak about um and, and more often than not in spanish uh, and my spanish is terrible so that that, that can be a logistical challenge <laughs> Um, the last the last trip we did I-, I did actually do the presentation in Spanish but my-, my boss was there as a safety net kind of sort of saying yeah that's the wrong word and then <laughs> sort of helping me out and I I, I really do thank Les-, Les and Chris did an awful lot of work and-, and before that it was Carlos and David did an awful lot of work um, sort of sorting out logistics with us uh, and so we did the planning and they basically helped translate a few things uh, and-, and did an awful lot of that with us. The reason the Navy are very Officious, I mean it's partly a kind of a we want to be boss thing, but it's also they are the free rescue service now I, I know from past experience if you need to call in on them, um, I've only once had to sort of call in for assistance on a, a trip um, due to a client getting unwell quite quickly uh, and that that was a hundred and twenty kilometers away from a, a village and that that took three days to get rescued um, and so it, it can take a lot of time yeah it can take a lot of time and effort from them um and so if you're all four or five hundred kilometers away from the nearest exit road point that is a serious logistical exercise on their half so they they want to be darn sure that you are prepared and ready um before letting you go anywhere near the sea this this last trip that i was hoping to do this year took um it must have been five, five months four or five months of planning um to get permission um because you're going into the ocean out of the fjord um unfortunately they said basically said yes and then corona happened and that it's gone um so that's on for another year <laughs> so there's two friends of mine um fee and james coffee this year who came and did an amazingly long trip down the fields out there um and because they got their permission f- much further north in patagonia where the conditions are a lot more gentle they, they they had absolutely no problem whatsoever with it and they they basically they they went in showed their plan and they went yep fine and they, they did it over a weekend <laughs> basically um the further south you go the, the harder it is to persuade the the navy um and they, they had all sorts of other issues of, of that instead
0: so moving on to gear now uh obviously you know, paddles kayaks uh wet wetsuit dry suit would be you wear
1: dry it's dry suits uh, yeah um, um but they but they do i mean the the day trips with, with guests and the day trips they do give you a wetsuit bottoms but they, they are five millimeter fleece lined, stupidly thermal things um the the water in the in the rivers uh, that we tend to guide on uh is about two degrees centigrade uh in the sea it ranges from about two to three to ten ish if you are right out on the coast it's about 10 degrees but it, Yeah, it's 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 not surviving a very long time.
0: I mean, once once when I was doing public services in college, we went and did uh, some water sports, and one of the things we had to do was that typical sort of here's some tubs and some wood make a raft, that team building exercise, and I remember being in a wetsuit in the in the water there, and this is just in Southwest England, nothing nothing crazy. We haven't gone to Norway, and I remember like freezing like so much, and I was like I was like holy like this must be like isn't like winter or early spring or something and i just thought this water's got to be like sort of five degrees and i asked him and he's like no it's about 12 to 15 degrees at the moment <laughs> so yeah yeah
1: um it's just- it, oh yeah i mean it takes your breath away you get that lovely sort of cold shock um what's really interesting down there or certainly from my experience is, is if you do go in it feels pretty much exactly like falling in the sea in the uk it, it, it takes your breath away you get cold um the difference is how long you can last in it and when when you're in that very glassy or cold, it, if you've not got a dry suit on, you're going in deliberately for a swim, sort of shorts and t-shirt. When you get out, because of the two degrees, almost burns out your capillaries. You They all open up and you actively feel hot for a few minutes.
0: That's dangerous.
1: <laughs> and so it, it, actually, I mean, it, it, if you manage it well, it, it can look, look very cool for an outside observer. You kind of jump out and you're, you're not shivering. You're like, yeah, I'm fine. Um, but you've, you've maybe got like two or three minutes to put warm layers on. Cause when it comes into your core, then you are proper cold. And so you, if you, if you plan it right, you can kind of warm up. Um, certainly as a paddler, you're in a dry suit and you're layering for going in. Cause if you are in it, it's not long before you're hypothermic.
0: So we, we've we got that basic gear, but I mean, what like heading out like food wise it's 40, 45 days where it's going to take you three days plus to get rescue. What are you doing for basic things like food and shelter?
1: So the, that first trip, we, we basically we went to freeze-dried stuff. When you've, you've got that much uh, food, you've got to pack in the boats. Um, also, the available boats we had were only low and medium volume. They weren't high-volume expedition kayaks. We, we, we got, um, we had a, I have a mutual contact from someone else who runs um, an Antarctic logistics service. And they, they throw away all their out-of-date freeze-dried meals every year. And so we, we ended up with something like 120 days' worth of freeze-dried meals that were out-of-date for free, which was great. Because um, they were just chucking them out. And it, it's dried. It's not going to be bad. And so we, we basically had them as our dinners. Um, And to supplement that, we were averaging four and a half to 5,000 calories a day uh, consuming. And we reckoned we were burning about 5,000 calories a day. So on a slight negative through the trip. And to to make that work, you do two days of normal dinners. uh, So freeze-dry meal with added butter. Everything has butter in it. So your, your breakfast, your dinner, sort of 100 grams of butter in it just to add calories. For the third day, you then have what you call double dinner days. So you'd have a second sort of supplementary add-on meal, which helps kick the calories back up again. But also mentally is a really nice thing because you're mentally looking forward to fat day where you've got that second meal. <laughs> fat day. That's oh, like every day for me over lockdown. <laughs> yeah, pretty bad. It's basically lockdown eating. Um, the breakfast that we have, we we made our own basically granola. Um, I I've always liked putting custard powder in mine. Um, cause it, it makes, bulks it out. Um, but we, we added, it was, it was granola and nuts. We added dates. So there was three or four dates in every pack, uh, chocolate and bits of mango. So you had some chew and something to enjoy in it as well. Um, the big luxury was having a, a fresh proper, um, like mocha coffee pot. That was the one thing that we did yeah. manage to cram in there. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which is very, very luxurious.
0: Saying so to the Navy, no, no, this is absolutely necessary. We need this. <laughs> uh,
1: essential, essential stuff. Um, and then, yeah, lun- lunch was very basic. L- lunch was a handful of trail mix and 100 grams of cheese, and you just ate that neat because the, the bulk to pack in crackers and things, y- your calorie to bulk was just not worth the bother. And most of the time, in the middle of the day, it's raining, it's windy. You're either in the boat or you're on a beach. You don't want to hang about and make sandwiches, that sort of thing, and a couple of chocolate bars either side of that. Um, we we did make it. We made a huge mistake on our second expedition with food, and we we decided to add a pudding in and and bought nougat. Um, these massive big blocks of nougat that were stupidly high in calories, um, but when you take nougat to somewhere that's just above freezing level, it's almost impossible to eat it. <laughs> You're kind of smashing it into lumps, and they all fracture into shattered little lumps, and you're kind of trying to chew it. <laughs> um, like cycling we... on it to warm it up. Yeah, I think we barely touched it. The whole trip. <laughs> um, so don't don't take nougat if you go somewhere cold. Um, uh, noted. So, yeah. so let's get into the
0: the highlights of the of the trip now. So I mean, generally speaking, the the route as a whole, collectively. Like how does it start out, and as you're going through what what are each highlight you're expecting to see in each stop off point
1: so the, the The first trip we did, which was between a, a very small town called Puerto aden to uh Puerto natales where where we where I kind of live and work um the the route itself was about eight hundred and forty kilometers uh, in the way that we decided to do it um, and the adventure actually starts in puerto natales you you get on a ferry with the boats, and the ferry goes all the way up through the fjords to Puerto Aden, which is the next point of call. So between Puerto Aden and the Talos, there is no get out option. There's no, literally you'd have to cross an ice cap and climb over the Alps. And that, that ferry then continues up. And, and you basically jump out, it's a 200 person community. There's no roads. Everyone has boats there. Um, there's boardwalks on the, on the shore side. Uh, and we expected there that it, there'd be a pier, that the ferry would come in and you just carry everything off but that, that wasn't the case. It, the ferry literally, and it's a huge commercial ferry, it just drops the ramp into the sea and the locals come out with their little boats like pirates <laughs> and sort of land on it. Like um, invading their own town. Um, which was, it was amazing. We literally like jumped off the back of the ferry um, onto someone someone's fishing boat and uh, kind of got, we got, got our ass saved when we got there because the, the captain, although we'd been in email contact, we got there and he sort of said, yeah, you're not allowed to camp and no, you're not allowed to go till we've sorted the permits in three days time. And there was nowhere to stay um and so a, a local fisherman came up and sort of said you come to my house and you can cut firewood for two days um, oh, legend. which was great of him um, um yeah really sort of saved our saved our bacon and from there the, the trip the the highlights for us was trying to get to these very remote glaciers that are very difficult to get to any other way um, the first one being uh, the largest glacier in South America, which is Pio, Pio Onze or P-O-X-I. There was then a, another fjord further south, about 450 kilometers in, uh, called Seno Asia and uh, Peel Fjord, which is this big opening in the fjords, just glaciers pouring into it from every direction. Uh, and then the last, the last one, um, which is what I'd actually been to before, is the Canal de los Montañas or the Canal of the Mountains which is this very linear sort of 100k pure of just glaciers everywhere. Now, all three of those were northern detours on an otherwise southerly route. You had in your head, we planned the trip for 45 days, hoped it was going to take a month, but if if the weather totally cacked out on you, you could cut off these highlights and and suddenly gain an enormous amount of time. Um, Because each of those northern detours added on three or four days of paddling. Now, she- Seamus, uh, Seamus Nairn, who was my expedition partner, uh, he came down and joined me from Scotland. Uh, for him, pretty committing. That was his first real sort of big expedition adventure. And so really kind of jumping into it. His his first glacier was Pio Onze, which is the largest in South America. Um, it was 11 kilometre wide sort of 150 metre high at the front glacier, amazing thing. Seamus has joined me on all my other big trips down there. But he has this, his, his last name's Nairn, and we, we started calling it the Nairn Effect, in that whenever you're journeying, the weather seems to be absolutely horrendous. But whenever you get to the kind of jewel in the crown, there's suddenly no wind, the sun comes out, it's glorious. Which I think we have for the first five or, th- five or six highlights on two trips combined, <laughs> which is amazing just unbelievably good good luck and yeah the, the kind of journey the journey in between was really really kind of wet most of the time i mean you're, you're in the rain and the wind um but yeah whenever we got to these amazing spots the weather really played ball with us which was ace um,
0: that's fantastic because i i've done um i've done the, the the uk's three national peaks uh just one time each and uh all of them were in horrific weather. I'm, I'm hoping one day I can see a nice view from the top of them. So it's uh, nice to... If it's,
1: if it's any consolation, it was, it was my sixth summit of Ben Nevis before I got a view. No! So, uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> that motivates me to do it's, more, yeah.
1: It, it, it caps in cloud a lot. Yeah.
0: yeah, so, so to, to put that monetary investment into Patagonia. And, and something just even more epic and to get that that effect, <laughs> like you got it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for Seamus, it was a much better bang for your buck because obviously I've been there the whole season getting paid and working. Um, with Seamus, he's kind of flying down for a relatively short trip, so it's great for his sort of investment in that sort of point of view. But it, the other thing we wanted to get out of these trips... Um, which we're not by, by no means the first to have done these trips. Um, they're probably in a very small majority. Um, I'd sort of say less than 20 have probably done it. It's quite unusual to try and add in portaging, um, so carrying the kayaks over things. Now, for me, practically, I really like portaging. So does Seamus. It's uh, It's like bashing your head against a brick wall. It's, like, it's oddly fun when it stops. Um, <laughs> but the... There's, a, there's quite a good cultural connection there. So, historically, you had tribes tribes in the western fjords uh, called the Quesca, and the Quesca were canoe people, um, incredible people. I mean, they basically lived in loincloths and had, had almost no clothes on, despite the fact it was snowing and windy and horrible and wet. Uh, incredible humans. Uh, how they survived is beyond me. But they they mastered with these canoes portaging over these channels and gaps, so you would, ha- you would avoid these big, very exposed ocean headlands. Um, and as part of our trip, we wanted to kind of join in some of those and actually use some of these ancient Cuescar portage routes, um, which are completely and utterly overgrown and wild now The Cuescar are long since gone, um, apart from in this little town, Puerto Aden, where there's a few remaining. Um, unfortunately, largely, largely lost out to to sort of Western disease and, and the, the Spanish um, and and the Brits. To be honest, I think I'm pretty sure uh, Darwin brought a few back to Victorian England, <laughs> which is horrifying.
0: But that is incredible, though. Just just like so, like deliberately adding in portaging across land is is a a brave thing to add in. I think.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, for me, for me, in my head, it was actually a kind of safer, safer way of doing things because it, it cut off these very, very committing. Um, ocean sections. And, and you, you can't drown if you are on land. It's very difficult to. <laughs> <laughs> the added dragging, I've added in a bit of that. Do you, what do you do with the kayaks? Do you kind of just shove them on your head or try and bind? You, you drag them. Um, that was a lesson that we learned between our first and second expeditions out there. The, the first expedition, the way we'd pack the boats, I mean, we literally rammed them to absolutely bit of air, airspace possible. Um, to point, actually, when we, we first float-tested them, which was in front of the Navy, uh, we, we were pretty worried that they might actually float or sink. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, thankfully, they did float. But we, because we packed everything loose to fit it in, unpacking it was incredibly time-arduous. And so we, we chose instead to, to drag the kayaks fully laden, um, which were about 120 kilos. And you, you do them one at a time between you, and it was literally three three or four kilometers of we we, we use do you you remember in the 90s that program gladiator yeah 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 yeah. so we we would call it and you go gladiator ready and then pull like a foot and then you do that (laughs) and uh, we basically do that for 4k um (laughs) um, which (laughs) um, and it, it slowly it slowly covers the distance um but the the, set, the second trip we kind of planned a bit better and, and, and took bags and, and you'd unload the boats and do it in bags um, and it'd just carry everything out of the boats and then lift the boats empty over. Um, time-wise, it takes about the same time, but it's definitely kind of on your back. I suppose you're not
0: worried about people nicking your stuff down down that part
1: <laughs> of the world. I think we saw one or two boats in a month. Yeah, you don't, you don't see anyone. <laughs> you're basically on your own. Um
0: for people listening to this podcast, uh, last month we spoke to Jenny Jenny Wordsworth who solo skied to the South Pole, and she yes, actually yeah. spoke about how isolation can be fantastic for your mental health, perhaps when you expect it and want it more than when it's imposed on you, <laughs> like we've seen this year. But but yeah, did you did you get similar effects when you were just, it was just you and your friend Seamus, just just on your own the, the whole way?
1: Yeah, you you do actually, and the. The particularly that first trip we were out for a month, um, because your only communication to the outside world is a satellite uh, phone, and if that runs out of power, you are unable to call for rescue, so you are not using it at all. That is an absolute, just an emergency thing. As soon as you set off, you basically have a month completely disconnected to the world. Uh, you find this in any, any sort of trip that you do, but after, after a little bit, little bit of time, your life becomes a routine, and it's, it's you get up, you have your breakfast, you have your coffee, you paddle for six hours or eight hours or however long, um, you put the tent up, smash dinner, go to bed, repeat, um, and it, it, of course the scenery changes and the weather changes, but it's basically the same thing every day, and the problems that you come across are normally solvable, so I'm too cold, something's broken, I want food the weather's bad they're all very logical fixable things um and having that is is very good for your mental health because you you aren't bombarded with other worries and stresses and opinions it's just you and the elements and and for Seamus and I just a chance to catch up and chat and um just kind of mull mull the questions of life over you have amazing you have amazing discussions and kind of like I wonder if the world has ended um there was going to be a third chap joining uh, Matt Smith, who ended up going and doing something in in Canada instead. Um, And he had this saying that uh, he called it Matt Sylvania. Um, So I would have Will Sylvania. Um, And it's kind of, you had a a universe. What would you, what would you run? Um, Like, how would your universe go? Things like uh, for me, I, I would, anything arduous and tedious, you could just get rid of with an equal and appropriate amount of pain. So like, Doing your taxes would be like a swift kick in the nuts, and that's done. Um, <laughs> and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> do you in really kicking uh, nuts, or do you want to stay up till two
0: a.m. for four nights in a row yeah. <laughs> sorting out yeah. the seats on the living room floor? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you get time to mull these sort of things over. I think the the other thing as well with those sort of trips is generally i'm i'm just as guilty as this as anyone i spend a lot of time mucking about on my phone it's very rare nowadays that anyone has the chance to truly experience boredom and sort of mental sort of silence almost um so like a lot a lot of padding i mean you talk about these amazing adventures a lot of these kind of big open passages and things are fairly tedious if you're if you're crossing over a big passage and you're just covering distance you might have an hour or so where you are just going through the motions of paddling and you're looking at the view but your mind has the chance to wander uninhibited from anything around you um, and that i think is something that's very valuable to make
0: it more common and more relatable we all know someone who or maybe you've yeah. been that person in the past who Perhaps jumps from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship and you never spend that time on your own and you actually I, th- I find that those people yeah. lose who they are and they've just become parts of each person they were with and so to, on a bigger scale it's a bit like that I think people need that me time even if it isn't the grand grand version that you had <laughs> to figure out what actually do you, do you like what actually do you value and appreciate
1: yeah, and, and, and to be honest, I mean, it's very achievable anywhere in the UK by just going for a walk in the hill um, and sort of leave leave your phones and stuff behind um, or leave them in the bag turned off in case you need them for an emergency. But it's, uh, yeah, it's having that kind of time. I, I certainly found with the, the trip in Patagonia with Seamus and I, we we obviously could chat and things. And I, I obviously had done quite a long time on my own a couple of years before, um, and so for me, it was kind of mulling over new things that I'd learned in those last couple of years. But I found certainly the first time I spent a long time on my own, largely away from technology, you, you kind of would go back to sort of things in high school. And like, like you know, when you wake up at night and you suddenly, remembering that time you embarrassed yourself in front of the school. <laughs> <laughs> and you, suddenly you're like, oh, no. Um, but you, you suddenly have that chance to kind of mull through and sort of come to peace or... Yeah, kind of men- mentally, mentally close the chapter on it. Um, oh yeah, I, I've instantly thought thought of a few.
0: <laughs> yeah, we've all got them. <laughs> just like, uh, why did you do that? <laughs> like, wake <yeah>. up screaming! <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so um, I mean, we we basically covered just such fantastic mental health and, and glaciers. Uh, we we were chatting through highlights. Was there anything else that really stood out about the trip? Well, both trips for you.
1: I mean the I think the thing for me was the the kind of camaraderie that Seamus and I have developed over that. Um, I mean we, the the views are spectacular and the scenery is amazing. And the event is amazing, um, but the thing that will kind of last for for the rest of my life is kind of the solidification of a very strong friendship. Now for for Seamus and I, we were basically as close to being brothers as you can be. Growing up, we were either I was either at his house or he was at mine, setting fire to or swimming in just about everything, um, and having that those big adventures together as adults allows you to kind of almost re solidify that. And it, it's it's quite nice to be able to have that it is
0: brilliant because when you're an adult you do kind of get pushed on these separate paths for a while don't you? And um and and you know that the feelings are still there as as far as a friendship goes, but to be able to go and you solidify do, you do. it. It's fantastic. Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. Um and it's um it's something that i think everyone should do with their friend. i mean it's it's very difficult when like like say in the rat race of life you tend to follow your own path and and it's very easy to deviate with those sort of things. Um, but when if you can bring them back together again it, it's 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 always good.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Out of interest, w was he one of the kids that was on the island that your parents sort of cast
1: you away on? Oh, yeah, he he was <laughs> yeah. actually. Yeah. Um so that's um, Seamus is probably the one making the most sensible decisions. I would think <laughs> it's we we get very good discussions because we've we've we're both working in the outdoors, but we've both gone kind of either side of the controversial classic argument side. So I, I originally went into hill walking guiding, um, where Seamus is a, a gamekeeper on an estate, um, sort of doing deer management and estate management, and uh, traditionally you get a lot of a lot of arguments between keepers and and hikers. Um, but for us, we we're obviously very good friends, um, and that, that's changing now as well. the The more modern we get as society, the less those arguments are. But it's, it's uh, makes for great discussion.
0: Um, well, I mean, before we before we head to some some more wrap up questions for for the trip in Patagonia, I suppose it would be great to hear hear anything else we need to know. And then just some, uh, specifically I wanted to know just the, the, the distances you covered, but if there's any other weird facts that came,
1: up, came out from it, then share them. The, the weirdest thing that we found out in the, in the fjords is the tidal movements that you get there, which was our big mystery for, for both trips. And it we, was slowly unravelling that the more people we speak to. If you imagine the fjords are kind of this interlocking finger of land and you've got channels in between them. You've got the waters moving in and out with the standard tidal movement that you get. Um, Normally changes roughly every six hours-ish. Some tide comes in for six hours, out for six hours. Now there, by the time the tides come in, it hasn't reached the end of the fjord yet from the ocean. And so you get this kind of delay going on. And so the tide sort of starts to do this sort of steps and jumps and things. Um, Normally a tide will do a nice parabolic bell curve up and down. But in, in Chile, you get this weird, almost looks like a one of those graphs you'd see on a heart monitor. It does these kind of jumps and steps and flats and dives. And you can get weird things where the tide doesn't move for six hours and then jumps half a metre in 20 minutes. And it, it, they do weird, weird things out there. And we, we obviously have very little tidal information. And we were going on just trying to gauge it by what tidal knowledge we have and, and eyesight, basically eyeballing stuff. But we we were utterly unable to predict the tide. You'd sometimes go into one fjord and it would be going against you and then you'd go around the corner and it would be going with you in the same fjord. The weirdest one we had was we paddled into a dead-end channel, uh, this was to one of the glaciers, and the tide was constantly coming out of the fjord, so flowing against us. But at the same time the beaches were rising and so the fjord is filling up and emptying at the same time. And so weird sort of things
0: i mean did that make finding camping spots hard for you
1: yeah um so that that was the big game as the the west coast of patagonia if you imagine it like bands you've got the the pacific ocean it's going west to east um the fjords which are this sort of tiger highly dense overgrown steep environment um all the all the vegetation is is so thick it's, virtually impossible to walk through. It's all spiky. You suddenly rise up into the Andes where you have an ice cap and then east of that it then starts getting drier and you go into flatlands and pampas. Um, In the west coast it's literally the wettest place on earth. It has up to nine metres a year in some areas of rain. You end up with this very narrow band on the coastline of campable area Um, and you can find you can normally find campsites on the river deltas but it can be very very difficult to find them. Um, and sometimes you go many tens of kilometres between any landing spots. And we we did get caught out a couple of times where you, you put put one in and you, you'd you look on the, the kind of tidal information you did have um, and say, right, well, nearly at the top of the tide. And you camp and then you'd be maybe two metres below the tent. And then suddenly in that last half hour, it's a few inches from your door and you go, ah, bugger. <laughs> uh, at which point you start hacking out the vegetation behind you trying to find... Higher ground. <laughs> uh, um, we definitely did. We definitely did get caught out. Um, and there, there, there were definitely a couple of nights between the two trips where, where one of us was basically sitting watch, and you were having to get up every half an hour and look out and be like, "Yeah, we're good." The the worst thing is that you get uh, there's a natural grass that you get there that looks like this beautifully mown lawn, and it looks it looks like it's above the tide line. It literally looks like a like a grassy field of play. Uh, And you you camp on it, and it is definitely intertidal. It is an underwater grass. And and you you get caught out by that one once. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and you go, ah, no, it's going to be wet. (laughs) You know, I was thinking
0: of, you know, the normal question of, you know, what's one thing that you would do differently? But you are this is the you've done it twice already you're about to do it a third time you're already such an accomplished person so what i wanted to ask instead is each time you plan this what's one location or the first location in your mind that comes to you
1: straight away and you're like yep we're going here um in, in short it's places with ice normally um so i i like to try and plan places that i think i'm gonna see i will need to see really before they melt um and it's uh, they they are disappearing fast, um, and so that's kind of my beeline normally. All those trips in Chile, we we you can do them a lot faster if you go straight A to B. But you you miss out the real jewels in the in the fjords, which are these incredible glaciers. Um, and it, there's nothing that will ever stop that being enthralling. Any anyone who's paddled with with ice or or glaciers, uh, will know that. I've even just seen them on, on foot, they're, they're absolutely mesmerizing.
0: Um. yeah and uh, in fact on your blog on your website I, I really like not only do you have the map there showing the route going down and it's just in the fjords have a little paddle about yeah. come back out yeah, <laughs> okay, the next yeah so you get these kind of funny mm-hmm. funny little detours I, I remember this image on your blog which is just uh, two big clumps of ice and um, it's just so perfectly shot you're sat on one and your friends sat on another <laughs> yeah. and in between you like, sort of a bit further back and then in between you both sat on the blocks of ice is the glacier in the background. Is uh...
1: yeah. That's if we ever have a really corny, if we ever have a really corny album cover. Um, yeah, <laughs> be be good for a band that one. Um, um, like some sort of like
0: album title related to elements.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's uh, come up with some corny name. Um, Self isolation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that one <laughs> that's awful um <laughs> no, i, 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 I yeah, disagree no, it, the, i think that's fantastic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um that that fjord actually really nearly uh, got us stuck so that that was in the very top of seno asia so the, the exact halfway point of our first trip and, and it, it, it narrows that fjord so you you go all the way up this this large fjord and it narrows down to literally about 50 meters wide and then continues, opens up again, uh, for about another 20-25 kilometres, um, which is then chock full there's, there's three or four massive glaciers that pour into that fjord. And that narrows is obviously very tidal, because you have all the glacial outwash and also the tide squeezing through it. And we were fortunate to get in there. Um, the, the ice allowed us to get right in to the very end of the fjord, where we took that photo, which was very, very lucky. Um, but then it became the race because you could see the ice was beginning to pack into the, into the entrance. And if it packed in, you, you could be there for days. You have no idea how long you're going to be there for. Uh, and so we kind of had, had this real race um, and, and almost, almost um, ended up finishing in the darkness. Uh, and we you, you came out to that entrance uh, and there were house-sized lumps of ice flowing out of this place. by must have been about six or seven knots. Um, and it, I mean, fast. Fast movements sort of ten mile an hour plus, and you, you basically had to time your kayaking to cross this channel full of icebergs mashing into each other, um, hoping not to get crunched in between them all, um, which was quite quite good fun. I mean, sort of you you'd you'd, ed, you'd eddy out behind a an iceberg and you would get little paws eddying out, and then it would start to roll and you'd have to go right. We've got to go. Um, and Sketchy fun.
0: Um, I mean, I suppose that there's that's the classic classic example of having reality in your perception. You know, the reality is the ice is moving, it's moving quick, it's going to pack up, you need to get out. Your perception is you can either be full of fear and be scared and and think, oh crap, it's all going to go wrong. Or you can do the exact same actions and just be thinking, oh this is kind of fun.
1: Yeah, although with a, with a very keen sense of alertness of going, yeah, we, we oh, shouldn't course, hang yeah. about at these places. But, um, let's uh, stop for a selfie. No, no, no. That's <laughs> um, <let's>, uh <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh, crazy. So, uh, last question then, just in, in the entirety of the trip, uh, both trips, if you could relive one moment, what
1: would that moment be? Ooh, that's a very good question. It it would be a, be a funny sort of flip side. It would either be the absolute most glorious nights that we've had, um, or it would be the absolute worst conditions that we've seen. Um, I can tell you the, the first trip we did was... we we had amazingly good luck at the very last week when we arrived into the canal de las montañas um, for me that was kind of the home stretch i'd already done an expedition on the first year i was there with a client um, which is actually where i I ended up having to wait for a rescue and so i was familiar with this area i knew we had five days to get back into the town but we had 20 odd days of food left and we we co we coincided with the most amazing weather window to die for. I mean, zero wind, blue skies, um, the sort of thing that you just do not get in the west, west coast of Patagonia. And it, and it was continuing for must've been about a week. And so we, we decided we would linger in that fjord and really explore it. And we, we camped right in front of a glacier, um, obviously far enough away that you were safe, but I mean, a good sort of must've been about 200 meters off the face of it. So pretty close and the the day after that we we decided that we were just going to have a, a day on the shore and try and climb as high up a mountain as we possibly could um, in wetsuit shoes and so we, <laughs> we 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 got i mean it was pretty steep but fairly manageable we We got up above the glacier um, to it must have been about two and a half thousand feet, sort of seven eight hundred meters, to a point where we were cutting steps with a rock and sort of stepping in it with wetsuit shoes. and we thought, yeah, no, this is getting silly let's let's not do this now um but it, it was that it was that day where actually out of a very purposeful trip for kind of an A to B route that we we lingered to stop and not have any purpose and and just enjoy it. That was probably the highlight for me of any trip, and it was it was kind of the absolute utmost sense of freedom in that you kind of achieved this amazing place, but you could now kind of feel comfortable just to linger and explore it, and that that was that was pretty cool. Um, and on the flip side of that, the. The sort of the worst weather that we had, uh, which is a classic case of the, the conditions turning from, from good to very, very windy uh, on a dime. I, I took it as a sign from, from the elements. And we pack out all of our kit normally, so like all the trash you come out with. Um, and we had this, um, there was one steel uh, gas can that uh, we compressed into a sort of pancake uh, and it's steel, so steel will disappear, it will rust. And we, we were crossing over a fjord that was about 3,000 metres deep, and I thought, oh, I'll just sink it and it'll go to the bottom of the fjord and disappear. Um, and I, I dropped this thing, which is it's a little bit naughty to do. But you think, yeah, it's going to disappear. Um, and as soon as I dropped it, you saw the whole horizon go black and go... Whoa, and the, wind, the wind came in. I mean, we were 4 k off the shore. We had an absolute epic getting across. I mean, very big following sea and very heavy laden boats. Um, it must've been about 40, 50 mile an hour wind on the side of us, sort of spin drifts and I mean, real sort of survival paddling. Um, I decided after that, that's the last time I'll ever drop anything in the, w- <laughs> in the wild. <laughs> it was a si- sign from Poseidon. So it was a lesson learned. Uh, it was like, yeah, no, we, we won't do that again. Well, well, listen,
0: you, you, you're not one to, to give up on adventure. There's going to be plenty more. Um, so two things, if we wanted to do some kayaking in the UK,
1: where could you point us and then a follow-up question if we wanted to stay updated with you where should we go so if you want to join me for a kayak uh, i run a kayaking company on the west coast of scotland called kayak summer um, you're most welcome to come join for half a day a day multi days um, i can also arrange if you want to if all that talk of wind and ice and gnar has not put you off uh, to arrange it in patagonia um through our, our sort of friends and sister company kayak in patagonia um, and you can actually book that through our kayak summer Wiles website as well um that will not be open this year though i think the whole tourism situation down there is going to be pretty closed. if you want to follow my own personal ventures uh will will com that's where i tend to publish it uh or will on instagram these days i tend to put a lot of stuff on and uh yeah i look forward to seeing or hearing from you
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So uh, everyone, go in the show notes, click it now. Uh, (laughs) Now! (laughs) And, uh... And, and yeah check it out because Will's done some incredible adventures um, yeah not to turn this into a such a huge plug zone but honestly before we started recording I just kind of got lost on the website looking at all his trips in Norway which was meant to happen before Patagonia um, reliving the your time around Scotland from, from when we did the interview so yeah go check it out but Will thank you so much for coming on the podcast it is an absolute pleasure thank you
1: it's a pleasure as always Chris and thank you very much for having me
0: Yeah, such an incredible expedition there from Wills. Absolutely mega time. Definition of type 2 fun, to be honest with you, which is what I certainly look for, and I'm sure many of you do as well. Let me know your thoughts. Have you ever gone kayaking somewhere like that before? Have you been to Patagonia? btmtravelpod at gmail.com, and you can check it out on there. And don't forget to sign up as well to the monthly newsletter, the first episode, episode? First newsletter of which comes out on the 25th of January, so give that a go. Thank you so much for listening. Get in touch and send us your thoughts on btmtravelpod at gmail.com. Like and follow the podcast on social media with the links in the show notes and below. I hope you have a fantastic day and I will see you in the next one.